to say zero. Does anybody else see the, uh, oh, there it goes, now it's starting. All right. So, welcome to the Friday evening um, Sangha call on Skype. Um, Anna has a question uh, about that, and so I'll let her ask that question again. Go ahead, Anna. Okay, Anna on stage again. So, uh, how effective the hundred people or five hundred people sangha is it real how, or maybe five or ten is somehow real connection but more than ten is kind of artificial it's go to interview more than than to real conversation um well let's let's clarify the question a little bit you're using the word sangha which has um um one kind of uh, way of looking and then the other one would be a public dhamma talk and the public dhamma talks are normally given at retreats and that uh in a retreat setting students are interested in learning the practice rather than being entertained then in fact you could say that your average church sunday morning service that has a um, uh, a sermon in it. That sermon is partly for entertainment, and that um, uh, in Thailand there is also a lot of public talks, uh, graduation ceremonies, and all kinds of things. And they generally will have a monk uh, to give those kind of things. And so. Um, <coughs> For entertainment value and for ceremonial value they, they have these um, public talks that have might be some good advice but people may may or may not be getting anything out of them uh, it depends upon who the audience is one example of that would be um, on Patty Mork um, late at night, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa would give a public talk starting at about 2 a.m. and he would finish at about 6 in the morning at about sunrise. But almost all of the people who were there for that talk were really, really highly dedicated people in the Dhamma, mostly in fact monks. Almost all of them were, would be monks that would be there or people who were living at the Wat and living uh, the lifestyle. So the um, the situation that I, I hear you questioning would be the situation within a retreat setting where you have a hundred people going and doing a retreat and that um, it's kind of impolite to um, interrupt the public speaker with questions. And so people don't get their questions answered. In fact, sometimes they keep mulling the question over uh, without getting an answer to it. And then they're not listening to much of anything else that's said. Once uh, the question starts, we kind of keep stuck on that. And so uh, there's a great deal of disadvantage 
for having too many people listening. Uh, for instance, here uh, 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 on this Sangha call, it's almost always associated with answering people's questions as opposed to giving an actual Dhamma talk. Now, <laughs> the funny thing is, is that they wind up being fairly um, uh, lengthy Dhamma talks, but they're always in the answer to questions. And any time that someone wants to interrupt, keeping a small form like this so that they can is the correct way to do it, because it's better uh, to get the, uh, the doubts cleared up easily right away. So, uh, having a small group also has a different advantage than merely a one-on-one. -on -one. That, in fact, generally uh, we're we're going uh, away from uh, the public talk into a therapeutic session, where you have either one-on-one um, -on -one with the client and the therapist, or you have a group therapy. Now, the, the setting that I was raised in was um, in, in a group therapy session. In fact, you could say that it was the psychology class and that everybody that was in the class was also in group therapy while they were in the class, that it was uh, uh, experiential and didactic mixed together, which is somewhat what we're doing here. So go ahead. You've got a question. I just said nice. I had another question for, for today, but I don't know if somebody else will ask something. Okay. Oh. Well, hello, Laurent. Let's go ahead then. And I, I just saw that you looked like that you had a question. And so I, um, I stopped. Let me continue. The, the two group settings then, or the two settings are going to be either one-on-one -on -one or a group setting. One of the major values of a small group is, is that when one person has their own personal issues and their own questions, and uh, in addition to that, their own successes based upon those questions, everybody can share. But in fact, that gave rise to the, uh, the, the joke about how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is it takes all of them that you've got one to actually change the light bulb and everyone else to enjoy the experience. And so um, that's basically what we're doing here, which is a different format than a public talk. Or an interview. Uh, where the, the audience is expected to uh, remain silent. And either you have an interviewer asking questions or you have a client asking personal questions. And so um, the setting gives great value uh, depending upon the situation. And if the, uh, the speaker uh, is wise, then he'll change his method so that he, if, if especially in a small group, he'll address individuals intentionally to get them involved. And so this is uh, the format that we have here for these Sangha calls and that uh, uh, from what I've heard, people have gotten 
great value that one person asks a question and then the next guy says, well, I'm really glad that you're asking that because it, it pertains to me too. Um, and so um, we can get, you know, better value out of the time for that way. So uh, by looking at these various situations, you can recognize that each one of them has its own value. For instance, in a, uh, a private setting, someone uh, may want to talk about something personal that they wouldn't want to talk about in a small group. Uh, I have a lot of students call uh, and do not want to call recorded for some reason or another, and so I don't record them if they request not to. Um, that would be actually unethical, uh, but uh, we generally explore the reasons as to why they don't want to call, and sometimes there's really good legitimate reasons. Uh, one of them would be the profession that the person is in uh, would require it to be difficult, a uh, public place. Um, an example would be the president of a university or a dean or a well-known uh, college professor or perhaps a psycho uh, psychologist or a psychotherapist, a kind of a famous psychiatrist. Um, in, in, that, in that regard, um, other people uh, that know them outside of uh, the Sangha group, uh, then would um, they would <clears throat> they would fear repercussions, and so people like to have privacy. And in fact, there is a great deal of value in privacy. The Buddha makes a mention of that uh, in fairly strong ways, in the sense that when we get started in practice. We need to do it alone. We need to do it in the sense of getting away from all of the other people and and practicing. Um, uh, let us say it this way. I like to say it, that we get away from the world and get into privacy and get into seclusion only to realize that we brought the world with us anyway. And so then that's the world that we start to clean up is that interior world that we have brought with us from the outside. And that often the stuff that's most important and uh, enduring, long lasting, rough, etc., like that um, is the things that we brought in from the outside when we were really little kids that as we age um, getting older, um, we all develop, um, let us say, a, um, a truth gauge or a bullshit meter. And that we can begin as adults to tell what is real and what is not real if we will use that adult part of the mind. What's, what's going on here? Is this real or not? But when we were little kids, we didn't have any of that kind of discretionability that what we heard was real. And so we took it in and we've been um, then uh, living for our whole lives under a vast number of lies that we've been told by aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, teachers, other kids that in fact, some of the most ridiculously stupid stuff that a child could learn, he's learned it from another kid. That there, you could see that in fact, um, 
in any organization, there is both a formal structure and an informal structure. And the formal structure has to do with the top down, the hierarchy that the boss is on top and what he says goes. But in all organizations, there is a an informal structure, sometimes called the water cooler uh, conversation, to where all of the people, regardless of what uh, station in the company they have, they can still communicate directly with one another. And so, for instance, all of the janitors, while they're cleaning at night, they're talking to each other sometimes about the company, and all the company gossip gets spread this way. The same thing is true for every little child, that the formal structure would be the adults. But the informal structure is other kids. And we learn most of our crap from other kids. Why did we? It seems like that that um, that when we're children, we have a reverse bullshit meter so that we only take the bullshit and leave the crap or leave the reality out. And somewhere along the line, we have to reverse that so that we uh, uh, take in only the truth and see what's real. Now, the thing about, uh, it would seem illogical, well, why would a child take in the lies and reject the truth? The answer to that is that it always has to do with what he likes, because what he likes and doesn't like is ignorant. We're all that way, that we like things that are not good for us. We like things that are lies because it sounds sweet. It sounds appealing. Um, one of the most famous lies that have been told throughout all of time is, is that, oh, after death, you're going to heaven. You're going to be in a paradise if you do what we tell you to do now. That's a very, very universal lie that's been told. And so many, many people believe that it's a very delicious lie. Wow, I'm going to be taken care of? Because we don't believe that we're going to be taken care of in this life. And so we have to get it later. So there's a number of lies that go around in our society that are, uh, let us say, um, easily spread easily believed, easily taken in because they sound so good. In other words, if this one particular thing would happen, then all of these other problems over here would be solved. Therefore, this must be true because look how much good it would do if it were true. Let's make it true so that all that stuff will happen. Now, that's kind of magical thinking, and we all have it. But would, uh, one thing that would be good for each one of us is to start looking at things, um, let us say, with that discerning eye of, is that real? Is it possible? That one of the things that the Buddha has said about himself uh, in the Lion's War Sutra, the very number one thing, in fact, and you could say that this would be the number one teaching of the Buddha, by his example and that is is that whenever you hear about something the question is is it possible or is it impossible because most of the lies that we are told and we believe are things that are impossible they don't fit the reality that we already know and so uh, being able to discern what is possible and what is not possible is a great skill 
for us to learn. And I don't think that that skill of figuring out what is possible and what's not possible can be done in a large group, as you were talking about. Whether it's in a, uh, a ceremonial public uh, situation, like a, um, a, a, a class graduation, or if it's a, a typical Sunday morning sermon, uh, regardless of the religion, those kinds of things are almost more for entertainment value rather than for deep understanding. That in fact, many of those uh, public talks uh, are there to make people feel good, to entertain them, to give them something um, that they like. But psychotherapy and uh, group therapy are quite the opposite in many cases, that there we're much more interested in actually telling the truth, even if people don't like it. Um, there is a very famous statement out of the Bible, but it's missing a portion. And that Gloria Steinem has been uh, um, credited with the addition. And here's uh, the statement. Uh, you probably heard it. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Have you ever heard that? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Is absolutely true. But there is a third part of it that we have to put in there, and that is, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. But first, it's going to piss you off. In other words, sometimes the truth is hard to hear. We don't want to hear the truth because we have a different opinion of ourselves. We don't want others people's opinion of us. We want to hold the opinion that we have. And that that opinion, in fact, may be wrong, may be false. It may be uh, the perpetuation of some lie that we've been told or better still, a perpetuation of the lie that we've been telling ourselves. And so when the truth comes, it may not be well received or well met. But if the student can recognize that, this is why I'm telling the story. So if we can recognize that, then we can set that aside and say, oh, never mind that the truth is painful. If I will set my pain down, the truth shall set me free. And this is better done in small settings that people, when they're in a great big group, uh, and get embarrassed in that group, they're much more concerned with their embarrassment and how bad they feel than about the facts that were presented. And so the larger the group, the less likely uh, the truth is going to seep in. This is why it's so good to have it on a one-to-one -one basis, is so that people can listen and, and take in the data and gain some value out of it and recognize that there's value in it. That a lot of people, when they, they uh, first start to talk to me, they immediately stop calling. They don't want it. It's dangerous. It's um, uh, painful. Um, and so um, this, is, this is where we all are, is that we're trying to avoid pain and that uh, a much of the let us say, satisfaction and relief from uh, dissatisfactions and suffering is going to be 
when we come out of our delusions into reality and that switch is often painful. So, um, what's the difference then between therapy and uh, spiritual talks, spiritual conversations? Is it any difference or is it exactly the same? When they are both functioning correctly, they are close together. But they're often not functioning correctly. And so in that regard, they're also close together in their failure. But the whole point is, is that the only way that we are going to have big changes in our life is by us making those changes. The most important quality of all, I think, of the Eightfold Noble Path, the part that's really missing is the, the quality of right effort. And right effort, uh, I would define it as just the right amount, the least amount necessary to actually get the job done. And sometimes the job uh, takes more effort and sometimes it takes less. Uh, but whatever effort it is, we could only need to take the effort to get the job done. Now, uh, we could say, well, then if we could define what the job was, then we would have more understanding. Well, guess what the job is, is to clean out the junk in the mind, to clean out the, uh, the lies we've been told, to clean out the unwholesome thoughts. And we can do that immediately just by changing what we're thinking. And so that's the real change is change what we're thinking right here in this moment. That we can't change a destiny. We can't even change a habit. What we can change is what we're doing just right now. And over time, then, what we're doing right now will build up kind of a habit of its own, which will then, uh, let us say, mollify and sometimes even overtake and maybe eventually even destroy some old bad habits. But it has to be done one thought at a time, one moment at a time. And this is kind of painful. This, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, happens on an instantaneous level. Uh, the example would be that when Gawanka says to the students, when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again. Well, the people, when they, when, that never mind, by the way, is to figure out that the mind has wandered away. The mind can wander away and they don't know it. But when the mind does wander away and they recognize it or realize it, they, in, uh, instead of just saying, oh, the mind has wandered away, let's go back into the reality of watching the breath. Instead, they'll go into that part of, oh, it's pissing me off. It's not what I want. I wanted the mind to be on the breath. I wanted it to do its job and it has wandered away. And so people will have uh, language like, oh, monkey mind, uh, am I doing the right thing? When is the bell going to ring? And all of these other kind of questions that come up during, um, let us say, a normal retreat setting. Is this the right place to be? 
Uh, does the teacher know what he's talking about? All of these kind of doubts will come up when in fact it would have been very easy for the students to say, oh, the mind has wandered away from the breath. Hot dog, back we go. Or another way of talking about it, the Buddha says is, aha, I see you, Mara. Now, most people, when they see that they have made a mistake, like uh, unwholesome, revengeful thoughts or whatever, they don't like it. They want to have a higher opinion of themselves. That I don't do that kind of stuff. And so when we catch ourselves doing it, we don't like that. Rather than recognize, oh, now that I do see it, I can become free from it. And so it's a slow change of attitude that the student goes through from not liking themselves and trying to hide from all of their problems and all their foibles and whatnot and keeping them going because the self that I have doesn't match up to the self that I have as my standard. And the whole uh, object of taking the right effort is just to drop what's happening that is not real and pick up what is real as soon as we have the opportunity to do that, rather than going through that first stage of being unhappy and dissatisfied because the lie that I've been telling myself doesn't match reality. Instead of that, <clears throat> seeing what reality is, we should be very pleased. Hot dog, I, I can see it now. Um, <laughs> many, many examples. One of them is, is that the guy has lost his keys. It's at night and he is under uh, the, the light, um, uh, the street lamp looking for his keys. He's, he's uh, looking very closely and someone comes up and say, uh, well, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm looking for my keys. And the guy says, um, <clears throat> well, well, where did you lose them? And the guy says, oh, I left him down the road over there in the dark. And he, and he says, well, why are you here looking for the keys if you lost them way over there? And he says, because I can't see what's going on over there. It's dark. Well, that's exactly how we live our lives is, is that we uh, we don't want to see the darkness or we can't see the darkness. And yet that's where things are that we could look at and gain some value. And so changing that attitude is something that each student has to do on their own. And getting back to the point about a big um, lecture hall full of people, that's not going to happen there. That in the lecture hall, each person is sitting around other people. That in fact, laughter, applause, grumbles, boos, and all of that kind of stuff is contagious. And so people are not actually uh, living out their own experience. They rather become kind of a group experience, almost like that each person in the large um, theater hall uh, <clears throat> becomes part of the audience as opposed to an individual because of all the stuff that's happening. This is why it's better to remove that so that we can get into a very small group 
or uh, a one-on-one -on -one session so that we can explore these things that will help people actually gain some benefit from the truth rather than uh, avoiding it and, and going back to what's easy. So that's a fairly complete answer, I think, to your question and didn't take very long to do. Does anybody, do you have any further back uh, questions along that with Anna? Yes, uh, is it uh, possible to work with the group uh, dynamics? I mean, with the group dynamics or is just it's uh, whatever comes? I would say that um, it depends upon the situation. And it depends upon whether the group is a um, an ongoing meeting group. Such as what we have here or whether it's a one time shot. Because in a one time shot, the group dynamics will be much more powerful. And that uh, uh, the group actually, um, even though it can be small, people will become part of that group uh, and have the group dynamics uh, have as much influence over them um, as the actual, let us talk about it in the realm of teaching the Dhamma. But when the group is small, people can reflect. Not only that, but here's another thing about the actual uh, other direction, and that is, is that the guy who's doing the speaking, when it's a large group, we, uh, the, the speakers will kind of make the group a group in the sense that it's just one thing, and he's talking to that. And that in that regard, uh, the teacher is not looking at individual expressions, whether they're uh, they where their eyes are pointed, uh, what um, body language are they having, or anything like that. When the group is too big, the teacher can't keep track of any of that. But when uh, un unless there's some something obvious, someone sticks them themselves out in some particular way. Um, an example would be that one student will sit very, very rigidly and not move a muscle throughout the entire uh, long Dhamma talk, and that will catch the eye of the teacher. Another one is if people are gossiping and not listening. They're talking to each other. Then uh, the teacher will see that, but by and large, we don't in a large group, but in a small group, um, that's easier to see and also easy enough to deal with. And sometimes we can deal with it without even skipping a, uh, or changing the topic or anything. It's just kind of uh, milled it right in. So, hello, Tim. Welcome. Glad to see you. Um, today we've been talking about um, group dynamics and the difference between whether a group of people of uh, the size of the group determines the value of the instruction. Um, but we've pretty well covered that topic, I think. Uh, so does anybody have any new questions? Or any questions about this?
I'm thinking it's kind of remarkable that I was actually able to <laughs> answer a question <laughs> and still have time left over. I might have a, a question actually about uh, teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, how uh, someone who lives in the in the West, like maybe in Europe or United States, would go about uh, becoming a Dhamma teacher? Well, there are various ways of doing that with various degrees of success. Yeah, I mean, what what would be a wise way to, <laughs> to do that? Um, actually, I would say that the most important thing is, is that the teacher himself is well trained in in teaching um, that. Um, the example would be kind of in the West would be uh, that someone has studied the Dhamma, learned the Dhamma, and then decided all on their own that they're going to go out and teach the Dhamma. Now, there's a difference between living the Dhamma in our normal lives and, and talking to people whenever we get the chance versus this mental click and this mental change in one's mind of, I want to be a Dhamma teacher or I am a Dhamma teacher, okay? And that the question, the first question is, well, what kind of training has he had? Uh, was uh, he actually trained to be a teacher? Um, the example that I have is, is that there is in South Carolina, a university, is, the name of it is Winthrop, and it is a teacher's training college. It is a, a grammar school, it is a middle school, it is a high school, and is a university. And all of the children in uh, up through high school are taught by teachers who were in teacher training while they have a head teacher that is there in the classroom, okay? This is exactly the kind of situation that you would want to have for a Dhamma teacher. An example of that would be um, Oh, let's talk about it in the sense of Zoom, that we have a, um, a, a student uh, <clears throat> teaching program so that the students are becoming teachers. And they do that by each one of them over time giving talks. Just like the kids come up to the front of the class and are put on the spot and they've got to, to, to do it. That's the way um, that it should be done. That in fact, it happened to me the first time it happened to me, I felt kind of tricked about it. Because Bhikkhu Buddhadasa asked me to give a talk. Uh, no, he didn't. He asked me to help him through translation. Uh, that over time, both his and Achan Po's English got much better. But when I was there in the early 1980s, um, it wasn't good. And so uh, this particular uh, situation had a Dhamma hall that had, uh, uh, oh, let us say 15 or 20 monks and probably more than that in number of lay people. And I'm sitting up there in the front with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa and he starts talking about the Four Noble Truths. And so I, I say, yes, that this talk is about the Four Noble Truths. I come back to Bhikkhu Buddhadasa for him to continue his broken English, and I'm going to translate it into more fluent English. And he says, oh, no, you take it from here. He put me right on the spot. 
And that was possibly at that time, the truth shall set you free, but it'll first piss you off. But no, that was actually a very good thing to happen that in fact, I, I began to notice that with Achan Po, that he would put me on the spot. He, it, wouldn't like, it wasn't like, oh, we need you to do a Dhamma talk on the 30th of July in <laughs> 2047 kind of idea. It was, oh, right now, you take the talk. Or maybe um, in one occasion, um, <clears throat> he asked me to give a talk on the um, uh, seven factors of enlightenment. Well, immediately, uh, but but he said, do it tomorrow morning at 730 in the morning. And he told me that evening. So immediately I go to the Majjhima Nikaya and pull up the Anapanasati Sutta. And that night I almost memorized the Anapanasati Sutta just so that that little portion of the seven factors of enlightenment I could give a good talk on. And I wound up giving a talk on the almost the entire Anapanasati Sutta in the sense of how the seven factors of enlightenment actually fit into the practice. So um, this is the question. Now, in the West, we have some other things going on. One is, is that someone wants to become a Dhamma teacher. And so they hear of a famous Dhamma teacher has an online course for seven or eight thousand dollars. So why don't I do that online course? And after a couple of years of just reading the screen of a computer or watching people on the screen uh, after paying seven thousand dollars, we've got a diploma. We've got a certificate saying that I'm a teacher. But there was no real teacher training in there. So what we really need to do to train the teachers is by kind of putting them on the spot. Once someone's got the, the Dhamma very well, uh, then the teaching. So uh, in fact, there's a sutta about it. that says that there are five ways to learn the Dhamma. One of them is to listen when someone is expounding the Dhamma. Another one is to learn the chanting and then learn what the uh, the sutta means in the chant. Now, we don't quite do that in the West, but what we do do is that we'll read a book and then we'll think about and mull over what the book has said. So that's three of the things. The fourth one would be in discussion, either with your teacher or with other students, and discussing and talking about the Dhamma. That's what we would call also Sangha, as to where we're working together with it, helping each other. And then the fifth one is actually teaching the Dhamma. And I've come to understand that it's the teaching of the Dhamma is where we really learn it the best, partly because we want to give the students the right thing. And so uh, an example of that would be when I would say something to a student uh, later, I'd reflect, well, where did I learn that? Did I learn that out of the gutter of Buddhism? Did I learn it on the street? Who was the one who said that? Or did I actually get it out of a sutta? Because a lot of the stuff that, that people learn uh, as uh, beginning students, they don't know where they, they pick up stuff from all over the place. Uh, going back to childhood, 
we often have a set of rules in our minds, but we don't even know where those rules came from. We picked it up from kind of a variety of places. Okay, so in this position of teaching the Dhamma, one of the things that's quite valuable is for one to know that what he is teaching is correct because he he has the reference to it in the sutta or in some other book of a trusted teacher like Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa or whatever. So this actually then um, congeals the knowledge. When I was first around Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, I was absolutely blown away at how well he knew the suttas. There was no way that I could do that. Well, guess what? In Thailand, every Wat has two and sometimes three different translations of the uh, uh, the Pali, as well as Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was making his own translations of the Pali. It wasn't until 1996 where uh, a fairly decent translation of the Majjhima Nikaya became available. So it was after then that I began to do what I saw Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa doing, and that is, is that when he would make a statement, he would have a reference as to where he got that information. And so I do that on a regular basis to make sure that students know that what I'm saying, I've got a reference for it. Now that may be overly scholarly, but it does keep the, um, uh, let us say, uh, the truth wagon rolling, rather than the teacher making something up and then uh, believing that and then teaching that. That in fact, that's what I see with a lot of Western teachers is, is what they're teaching is what they've made up or that they've heard someplace without really checking it out, verifying it to see that, it, that it's true. Uh, possibly uh, the biggest mistake that I see Western Dhamma teachers uh, make is the issue about money. Now, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was really, really clear, overly clear, that uh, the donation box should not be on display. It should be over in the corner, out of sight. People have to go uh, looking for it or know where it is. Now, that's an interesting point because you can see that there's various states. The lowest state would be receiving no uh, dana, receiving no gifts from the students at all. The next level up would be uh, making it difficult for the students to give dana making it available, but they've got to go out of the way to, uh, to, to do it. The next level up would be making it easy. The next level up over that is asking for Donna. But the worst one over that is setting a price on it. And that's where we are back into the Western world of business. That you can see all of these various stratas. Western Buddha is at the very top of that in the sense that they're out there requesting money. Now, here's something that's very interesting. It's very hard for a teacher to teach something that he's not doing. A violin teacher cannot teach the piano very well. It would be better to have a piano teacher to have somebody who actually plays the piano. And a lot of violin players, they pick up the piano because they can. And so I'm not saying that no violin teacher should teach the piano, but a non-musician should not set him up 
itself up to teach piano. So uh, in, in that regard, Buddhism has become um, a kind of a hodgepodge of Western culture and some good ideas from the Buddha. Uh, and I think also um, for Western for Western students and people, like ordinary uh, Western people, when you when you give them some insight or like some good uh, good dharma, you know, but mm -hmm. uh, you don't mention the Buddha, you know, uh, it's it's easier to to digest like if you if you just say it's psychology or something they will trust it more than if you say oh this is buddhism from the buddha you know like for uh, random people so right yeah it's not like yeah. uh, here in thailand where you say the buddha and then it's like officially high standard and <laughs> you're you're exactly right on that and that the, uh to rephrase that it would be if we can if this teacher can give the reference so that he can show that he's got the lineage, that this goes back to his teacher and back before then, all the way back to the Buddha, then that truth that's really hard to receive is easier to receive because it's got credentials. Right. Okay. And so um, the example that I was about to give before would be that um, Back in the old days, when tobacco and smoking cigarettes was becoming taboo, there would be often people who would go to the doctor for their normal visit. And if the doctor still smoked, he would not uh, recommend his uh, patients to stop smoking. But if the doctor had recently stopped smoking, he would be heavy duty to try to get his people to stop smoking. Mm -hmm. And if he had never smoked in the first place, then he would be only a little bit into it, uh, telling them to stop. But if he was still smoking, he would not, in fact, uh, be so inclined to recommend to his patients to stop smoking. So from that perspective, let's take it into the Dhamma and the issue of generosity. Friendship and generosity is what the Buddha really is teaching is all about. He says that the teaching of the, of the Buddha is all about friendship, both on the inside and the outside, which means we learn to be generous with ourselves on the inside and then learn to be generous with the people around us, to be friendly and generous. But when the Buddhism that comes to the West is a business model, then it's going to keep that one up, one down relationship like it's set up in psychotherapy so that the client will always be the client and the therapist will always be the therapist or the guru will always be the guru. Now, one of the, um, let us say, duties to the Dhamma that a good old meditation teacher should do his duty would be to not just teach the dhamma but to train some of his better students to teach so that they can teach well and the lineage will continue this is exactly what uh, uh bhikkhu buddhadasa was doing with me was that he was continuing the lineage that i'm still here teaching even though Bhikkhu Buddha Das has been dead for 
30 years now. But if they had not put me through that ringer that one time, nor ever again, then I would be disinclined to be teaching. So if we recognize it from that perspective, now let's go into the world of business and recognizing that it is very, very difficult to teach something like generosity to students when you're there taking their money and not giving them a chance to practice generosity. That in fact, when I don't receive any money from the students because it's just inconvenient and I've got enough, then in fact, I, I, I'm generous with others. I'm kind of lucky. I'm, I'm wealthy, but I'm poor. How, there's a phrase for that. Uh, yeah, independently poor. That's that's the way to say it. So, um, but I do recognize that I'm actually robbing the students of their opportunity to practice generosity. So this is where the Open Sangha Foundation is coming in, is to give people a chance to practice generosity without uh, shoving it on them or throwing it down their throat or requiring that they pay money for it. That in fact, this is what we need to teach. Um, uh, actually, a way of saying it, that, that even though Christianity is filled with stories and uh, lies and uh, systems that don't work. At least you don't have to pay admission to get into the church. They don't charge money, okay? Well, why is Buddhism charging money like they were a theater or um, a public performance, something like that? When the Christians don't, in fact, even the Christianity is a step ahead of Western Buddhism simply because they still keep that old model of generosity. And so what we need to do uh, for our next generation of teachers is to support them financially, support them in their education and teaching so that they get that substantial time in of teaching the Dhamma, reflecting upon what they're saying, is it true or not, and then getting their teaching style together, all while they're still under the wing of a master teacher. And then send them out because they know that they're well trained, rather than uh, claiming that somebody's a teacher because they've done an online course and paid the fee and gotten a certificate, that doesn't make a teacher a teacher. And that not only that, but if their teacher is money grubbing, which he is because he charged so much money for this course, then that leaves the student with, oh, well, that's the only way I can be a Dhamma teacher is by doing it the way that I was taught through uh, observation, which means I've got to go out and charge money for the Dhamma. To where, in fact, in Buddhism, in the West, that the Asian people that have come over because of the Vietnam War, the, um, there are literally millions and millions of Asians, probably maybe 10, 15 million Asians in the United States now. Um, <clears throat> and they uh, were brought in under the umbrella of the way that the government worked, you had to have an organization. And so a lot of churches sponsored a whole lot of Asians coming in during the 1980s. But by the uh, 
the 1990s and the 2000s, the Asians were willing to bring back their Buddhism, bring back their culture, and, and invite a, a large number of Asian monks to come how, uh, be housed in the temples in the, uh, the United States and all over. Then, in fact, Canada, Mexico, uh, Brazil, uh, and almost every country in Europe has uh, the availability of the Asian watch that don't have this uh, issue of money the way that the Western Buddhism has done. And so what we need to do then to help get these teachers trained is to get them into these watch so that they can be around monks who have been uh, dedicated to the Dhamma for 20 years. And yet the, the, the standard uh, operation that they do in the United States is go to Barnes and Noble to get their Dhamma, go to the bookstore, go to a retreat, uh, an expensive retreat that's being taught by one of those guys who has never ordained, doesn't know anything about the Sangha. He's paid for an online course, gotten her certificate as a Dhamma teacher, and now he's out running retreats, perpetuating this way of doing things. And this is the destiny of Western Buddhism, unless a big change can be made by bringing the Asian component in. So that instead of this guy paying $7,000 to get his teacher certificate, he moves into a Wat and lives there free of charge. Mm -hmm. So that's the better way of doing it. Um, and that the, there's going to be more Dhamma available more often than uh, doing things on a, let us say the retreats are intense, but they're infrequent. And also once a week meditation classes, et cetera, like that is all that people have in the West. It's kind of a very much a part-time situation to where within Asia, it's kind of whole hog. Here's the what, move in. Here's the Dhamma, let's do it, kind of mentality. So um, if we can make that change from money into Dhamma, then uh, I think that Western Buddhism will take off and be of value to many, many millions of people. But the way that it's headed now is just another business. And that just another business will be something like a sport or uh, a particular field of entertainment or just another church, just another religion that people find dissatisfaction in. That it would be good if we could find a way of teaching Western Buddhism so that vast numbers of people got it. And you can hear that there are various ways of doing this, that we have to train the teachers in a certain way so that they can be of value to their students. You could go so far even to say, um, it's, it's like this, that you gotta eat. And the answer to that is yes, go eat. And when you are full and you no longer need to eat, now it's time to teach the Dhamma. Now you can do that in an hour span, but a better way of looking at it is over many weeks or many months, you've got your food taken care of. You don't have to, to worry about eating. Now you have your Dhamma friends to help. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason for taking the money out of it is because as long as there's money, 
there's pressure. There's pressure on it, more money, more students. And because of that, the teachers don't want to share their students. To where in Thailand, uh, the, the, the teachers share the students. They expect the students to move around, to get a different perspective. Uh, uh, especially uh, the, the story of Achan Santicaro, they sent him to Wat Chula Patan to be trained and ordained to where they kept me at Wat Soan Mok. This happened a, a, approximately the same time period. But it depends upon the individual needs of the student and that having other training from other teachers. That's a really big bo old boys network, by the way, that all of the abbots of all of the watch, they know each other. And that they will recommend, oh, this monk, he goes over there and this monk, he goes over there so that they can get that various uh, um, education all from very senior monks to where in the United States, in the West, oh, you've come to our center. Oh, you've got to stay at our center. Oh, don't go someplace else. We'll lose you. We need you here in order to pay the rent. And so uh, that mentality uh, will prevent Buddhism from actually doing the beneficial work that it could do if it were cleaner. So this goes back actually to Anna's question about how the, how the, uh, the Dhamma is taught is, is that people often would rather it be done in large groups so that they can make more money out of it in fact, in the large groups, the individuals don't get real benefit out of it. The example would be the retreats, that before the retreat, the student has no relationship to the teacher. He pays for the read, he attends the retreat, and now the teacher can only give him maybe 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, and maybe not even every day because he's got so many students. And then at the end of the retreat, the retreat's over, the business deal is done, you got what you paid for, off you go. To where within the Thai model or the Asian model, it would be come, get yourself settled in, figure out all of what's going on, then do the retreat. And while you're in the retreat, everything is going very well for you. You're well cared for, well looked after. And after the retreat's over, you're still there. And so um, the <clears throat> the training is much better when we take the money out of it. That always money has a time limit to the end. An example would be that, uh, let us say a company uh, does websites and that they charge money for that website. But after the website is finished and the money is paid, the guy's involvement with that website, the guy who wrote the website, he's gone. He's not part of it anymore. We have to go back and pay him more money to get him to do more on the website. That's just the way business is. Except that in the, the situation that we have now, there are more students who need more help from more teachers than we have teachers to go around. And yet so many of those people have come very far into the Dhamma to the point that they want to be teachers but there's nothing available for them. They don't even know that they could just go move into the local temple and that's where they'll get all the education they need. 
Instead, they're out there scrounging around the Internet, looking for something in English language, looking for some book, looking for some course, looking for something that they can pay for so that they can continue with the Dhamma. To where, in fact, it's really easy. In fact, Laurent is now in Thailand. He knows exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that, yeah, uh, it's uh, very easy to, to, to find a place to stay. Uh, like if you're interested in the Dhamma and all you care about is the Dhamma, then uh, yeah, it's, it's a paradise. <laughs> right. And there, that will happen to people. As they grow in the West, in the Dhamma, their thirst for the Dhamma will outpace their ability to pay for the Dhamma when it's in a business way. But if instead we had it all free of charge, then um, the Asian community would help. The example would be is, is that once somebody moves into the Wat, we can begin to have weekend retreats there, and the Asian people will bring it. They always bring too much food on Sunday, so now they'll probably bring too much food on Saturday so that the retreat people will have enough to eat. And we can have a retreat of 10 or 15 people for the weekend, and that would be absolutely no sweat for most of the watch in the United States. Because they've got the facilities, they've got the food, they've got the situation set up. What they don't have is the Westerners, because the Westerners are too busy doing it in the Western way, rather than learning from the Asians. So, basically what we can say is, is that when, the, when Buddhism came to the West, it came on one leg, and that one leg was actually uh, badly done, and that one leg is Dhamma. We've had all kinds of Dhamma books, we've had translations, we've had everything, and that the translations are not very good. That in fact, on uh, I used to a lot, but on sometimes now, I'll get with a friend who knows the Thai language well enough that he can go into the suttas in the Thai to give me uh, the Thai version of what's in that sutta because the uh, the English language version makes no sense. So that's the first thing. But in Asia, the Buddhism was spread in groups of monks, those who lived the Dhamma, not just in a book, but they came with it. And not only that, but they brought their Sangha with them, a small group of monks. So when they brought Buddhism from the monkhood, they brought the, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha to where in Western Buddhism, it's all about um, <clears throat> the, the Dhamma and highly competitive about who's the Buddha. They're really, really interested in that kind of thing in the West. Uh, who's enlightened? One of the examples that they have is there's nobody been enlightened for Oh, three, four hundred years. This is one of the things that I've heard to where they they don't even know what enlightenment is. And so they gain a highly magicalized, in fact, somewhat Christianized ideal of what um, <clears throat> a Buddha is without really having examples hanging around all the time. And yet if they want examples, go to the what? Any monk who's been there 20 years certainly knows how to behave himself. And so that's the way to do it if you want to find it like that. 
And then the third thing, which is the one that we're really big on here, is the issue of the Sangha, of not just the individual, but as the individual grows, he, he works with other individuals who are also growing. That in fact, teachers can help teachers teach by teaching each other. Students can be students better by being students with each other and helping each other, getting into communication, because we all really want to hear the Dhamma a lot. And so the way to do that is by being in communion with other students, other teachers, uh, and um, all done in a noble way, rather than a competitive way or money or any of that kind of stuff. That in fact, we would rather be generous. I would rather give my students money than get it from them. And so going in that state of generosity is something that needs to be done in the West, that we need to make the, the Buddhism here more complete by getting a better Dhamma, getting better recognized as to who is able to practice the Dhamma, and then getting the students together to practice together. The Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, they call it the triple gem. And that's our refuge. We can't take just the refuge within one's own mind. We have to take refuge in the Dhamma, take refuge in uh, our own Buddha nature, and take refuge in our um, friendship and community with each other. And this is what uh, will promote Buddhism in the West. And so we actually, back to the point, uh, Anna, we have a larger audience there. Instead of having a one-on-one -on -one or a one with four or five or a small group, and then we have uh, a large uh, Dhamma hall, we also now are looking at the fact that we've got a very large audience. We've got the entire population of Buddhists that become the audience so that they can learn that there is more to the Buddhism than the, the competition about who got what experience in which retreat, but rather that they uh, learn to become friends with each other. So that's the real teaching of the Buddha, is that it's all together. But it all works around that one point of, in this moment, if there is dukkha, let's change it. That's the only teaching that we really need to know is look at what's going on and improve it, make it better. If we recognize that uh, the students are not getting out of the, uh, uh, the instruction because the teacher is teaching or is requesting money from it. In fact, many of the, the teachers who do want money, they'll say, oh, well, if you can't afford it, then I'll give it to you free. Well, he should have the mentality is that I'll give it to free to anybody, not have to do a special deal under the table. All we'll give people scholarships is rather that the education should be free for the asking, for the coming. So this is the teaching of the Buddha that any anybody who came to him, he would spend time with them, teaching them the Dhamma, never ask anything in return. But there's also one possibility, and that is what we call pay it forward. 
The big example is, is that a child can never repay their parents. In fact, most children don't even know how much trouble they are to their parents. And that the, um, when the child grows up and becomes an adult, now based upon biology and sociology and, and uh, the culture and all of that, he has his own children, but now he has to take care of them the way that he was taken care of. And so this is what we mean by paying forward. We can't pay our parents back for our raising, but we can pay it forward in the sense of giving that gift to the next generation. That's also true with the Dhamma, that I feel so grateful to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa and Achan Po that I have to pay them back and I couldn't possibly pay them back. One's dead and the other one's too old to care. And so the way to pay them back is by paying it forward into my students. And then hopefully the student gets the idea, I'll never be able to pay Damarato back for what he's giving, but I can pay it forward. I can help others with it. This is our duty to the Dhamma, basically, is to spread the Dhamma, but not just a little piece of it, but to spread the whole thing, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And so this is what we need to spread in the West at a larger audience. But ultimately, it's always back down to the real change is made in a one-on-one -on -one or one with a small group of people so that the teacher can watch the faces and get the expressions and figure out how to say it, et cetera, like that. So, Anna. Does that solve your uh, your question, or do you have other questions? I have much more, but I don't think it's. I will say today anything. I will. I will call you. All right. Excellent. <laughs> Does anybody else, Laurent? Do you have any final comments or anything to say? Uh, well, thank you. It was really clear, and um, yeah, I think it's valuable to to have a small group and a small community like we have, uh, find it really useful, even to listen to other students' uh, talks and stuff. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. How about you, Miguel? Do you have any famous uh, or uh, any um, final things to say? Well, how about you, Keyshawn? Are you there? All right, so never mind. Guys, it's been really I'm, great. I'm Thank here, you. I'm but not, oh. not much to say. <laughs> I didn't catch except, that. Uh, Go ahead. Happy Friday. It said, uh, not much to say except happy Friday, everyone. Oh, yes. What a nice day today is. All right. Well, thank you all so much. I appreciate it. I, I will see you again soon. I really like my friends. <laughs> thank you to come. And we'll see you again soon. Keyshawn, give me a call when you have a chance. Yep, we will do. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.